turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 to get started today. Now, I want you to know that I realize I am a sinner, and I am an imperfect person, and I'm saved by God's grace, and, and so is everyone else who's saved. But I want you to know I know that about myself. Um, I am a great sinner, and God is a great Savior, as it has been said. Um, with that being said, today we are talking about a difficult topic um, for some people. It, it might sound cruel or harsh, um, but it is necessary, and it is a gift for the church. And I don't, I don't um, embrace um, harshness necessarily, but I think that what I'm going to say is very important. So, again, I am a sinner. And I know that, and I know the church has sin in it, and God has given us means to deal with that. So today we are talking about church discipline, and this is part of a series, just a step back, called An Invitation to Membership, where I'm inviting you to me the membership of this church. We have members um, of, the ch of our church, but we also have people who have been coming for a while who are not members. So I'm inviting you to become a member of the church. Um, that would involve meeting, setting up a meeting with me. That would involve going through a statement of faith, our church covenant, and um, then receiving affirmation from the congregation to become a member, thus becoming a participating, voting member of our church. Um, and we covered that last week. So, last week I told you that membership in our church, it, it's the affirmation of the congregation that you are a Christian. It's brothers and sisters coming alongside saying, yes, your life bears the fruit, bears the marks of a Christian. That is what a Christian looks like. That's what membership is. Church discipline now is the opposite of that. Church discipline is when the church says, we can no longer affirm that a certain person is a Christian because that's not what a Christian looks like. And that's not what a Christian does. So it's rescinding the affirmation that we believe your relationship is right with God. Uh, one writer defined church membership like this. He said, It is the church saying that we can no longer lend our corporate kingdom name and credibility to affirming that this individual is a, ch is a Christian. Instead, we will treat this person as an unbeliever. That's the basi basics of church discipline. What Basically, what I want to try to convince you of today is that it is church discipline is the loving act of a church to warn a person who is on the path of destruction that they are in fact on the path of destruction. I care about you greatly, but I care 
not so I want you I want you to live full lives but I care about your soul more than anything else we are in, we care about souls as Christians and we care about eternity and that church discipline is a warning to somebody um, if we believe that they are on a path to destruction it's a way of our church pointing out that path to them and saying that we believe you are in a very dangerous place with your discipleship to Christ and your relationship to the Father and your walking by the Holy Spirit. So, turn with me to Matthew 7, uh, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Here, I'm just going to give you another nutshell of, of church discipline. Basically, what I, what I want you to, to believe, I want you to be convinced of, is that our church should never give the impression that someone is a Christian if they are, in fact, enemies of Christ. Are you with me on that? We should never give the impression that somebody is a Christian when they are, in fact, enemies of Christ. I think that's a fair statement, right? I'm not asking too much. There, there is a difference between a regenerate person and a non-regenerate person, a disciple of Christ and an un- non-disciple of Christ, a child of God and an enemy of God. And we want the enemy, unbelieving disciple, to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, where there's righteous, characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. We want them to feast at the great banquet hall, of God's glory with us. And so we mean all the good in the world to people um, that are unbelievers and even walk as enemies of Christ. But the way we go about seeking their good, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. The fact of the matter is there are people, I believe, and I believe there are people in churches today who are under the impression that they may be under the impression that they are Christians when they are not in fact Christians. Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 21, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness that that is a hard passage and again I don't revel in hard passages but they're important to teach the body of Christ. So a few things I want to point out here is Jesus does not call, as, I've, as we've talked about many times in this church, Jesus does not simply call for a faith that is equivalent to mental assent. He calls for more than just mental assent. Even the demons believe that Jesus died for sins and rose again, but they do not trust him as their Savior and follow him as Lord. So there's the true faith, which leads to following and faithfulness and obedience. And then there's the faith of demons, which is just understanding 
what God has done in Christ and then eschewing it and hating it by your actions. So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is, again, is not calling for some mental assent or some perfunctory statement of orthodoxy. He is calling for discipleship. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? But the one who does the will of my Father. True faith leads to obedience. And that's why throughout the book of Romans, you see the words obedience of faith together. Paul's aim was to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. There are people who will be deceived and are deceived into believing that they were in a right standing with God because of their participation in religious activities, Jesus is saying. It's their very participation in churchianity that gives them a false impression about their, the state of their soul. Verse 22, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? That is, did we not speak on behalf of God? Did we not participate in emotional and psychological healing of people, i.e. casting out demons? Did we not, did we not join that kind of ministry? It, it's their very being around Christian stuff that gives them the impression that they are reconciled to God. What does Jesus say? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. The reason that they are condemned is because they are workers of lawlessness. So, yes, maybe they've participated. Maybe, maybe they've Maybe they have um, done some great ministerial efforts. Maybe they've gone on evangelism trips. And, and uh, maybe they've participated in the life of the church. But their, their actual private life and discipleship to Christ is, is missing or it's not there. They are, in fact, workers of lawlessness and they do not follow Christ from the heart. That's why Jesus says, It's not who everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. If you go down to verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on a rock. So you follow me? True faith, true faith leads to obedience and action. I've, I've used this example before, but it's, it often just is the only one that springs to my mind. If you believe that the theater is on fire, you're going to get out of the theater, right? But if someone says, yeah, I believe the theater's on fire, and the theater's burning down, and they're just sitting there, something's wrong with that kind of belief. If they truly believed that the theater was on fire, and they were in grave danger, they would try to escape. This is what true faith is like. It's a belief that leads to an action. It's the obedience of faith, discipleship. 
That's why at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So it's not just the hearer, it's the doer. That's true faith. And that is not, that is not a works-based message. Let it be heard today. That is not a works-based message. I've explained this before in Romans. That is because if you are a Christian, you are regenerate by the Holy Spirit who produces certain fruits in your life and you are told to walk by the Holy Spirit. So Christianity is about the life of God in the soul of man. And you are enabled to follow him. So, this passage is about people that are, are going to be under the impression that they were Christians when they are in fact enemies of Christ. And we can know, a church can know, with a good measure of confidence, whether someone is a Christian or not. We can know with a good measure of confidence. Now, we're, we can't be perfect, but we can know if we know each other well enough with a good measure of confidence to know where that person stands with Christ. Why can I say that so confident, confidently? Because Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. Right? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So, you follow me on that? There are people who are under a false impression about their soul, the status of their soul. And church discipline simply says that if a person's life gives evidence that they are on the path to destruction, we must not pretend that they are on the path to life. That's, that is the, the, mean, the essence of church discipline. And it's the church's silence that will aid and abet a person's false impression about the status of their soul. And we don't want to do that. We want to be light. We want to shine. We want to shine on even the sin to expose it. So that, um, I'm thinking of a passage in Ephesians, because every, anything that is made visible is light, Ephesians says. So even the sin that is made visible becomes light. Even your sin, God can redeem for his glory. And it can become a testimony of transformation, which a lot of you have even experienced. So, if a person's life gives evidence, if they bear bad fruit, bad fruit, then the church should not pretend that they are on the path to life. Amen? We good on that? That's a, I think that's a, a good, solid, joyful, loving, obvious thing to say. Now, I love lists. I love these lists Paul gives because you want to know what kind of things disqualify, what kind of a activities would indicate that somebody's soul is in, uh, on the way to destruction? Well, Paul gives these handy lists. In 1 Corinthians 9 through 10, he gives one. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, he says. So don't be deceived 
about what other people say, about the, the cultural atmosphere, which is very, very weak on calling out sin. He says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, if somebody is a swindler and they, they, ha- they, they come to church, they sit in the front row, they, they, get, they buy a pig for the church cookout, and they, they, they come to Bible study, but they have this horrible habit, habit of knocking off liquor stores during the week to get extra money. We would say that something is massively wrong with that person's discipleship to Christ. Something's off there. It shows us that they're two-faced, number one. Number two, in the depths of their soul, they, they are not, they're not keeping in step with the Spirit. Same thing with those people who practice homosexuality and claim to be Bible-believing Christians. We don't, we don't hate these people. We want to love and serve them, but we do want to call them out and point to passages like this, which simply say that men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? It's not just the activity. It's the activity that betrays that there is something wrong with their soul. So, here's the point. If someone's life demonstrates that they are spiritually dead, we must not, by our silence, give the impression that they are spiritually alive. The most loving thing we can do is show the person that they are on the path to destruction. Follow that. If someone's on the path to destruction, it's a loving thing to tell them that. Right? If, I'm, if you're next to me in the car... Well, or we're on the phone together and you see my car going down the road and I'm going off towards a cliff and I'm on the phone with you, it would be very loving for you to tell me, hey, Eric, you're going to drive off a cliff if you continue to go that direction. That's church discipline. So we should not remain silent and thus implicitly give the impression that a person is on the path to life with it when they are in fact on the path to eternal destruction okay so if a, if we shouldn't do that if she if we should not remain silent what should we do answer if a person in the church is engaged in an open and unrepentant sin the church should formally remove that person from the congregation for their own good and the good of the church. So, if a person is engaged in open, unrepentant sin, it is the church's responsibility to remove that person from the congregation, from the fellowship, for their own good and for the good of the church. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 5, because I want to prove that this is coming from the Scriptures.
The Apostle Paul is dealing with a very, very sinful church. Um, the Corinthian church. And they at this point are very confused about Christian holiness. And in chapter 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So this person was engaged in flagrant sexual sin. He was having his father's wife. We don't know if that's just a polite way of saying his mother or his stepmother. But clearly he is in a sexual relationship with a woman whom he is not married to who is operating as his stepmother or maybe even his mother. And so this is not even tolerated even among pagans. And the problem with the church is they were accepting of it. They were arrogant, Paul says. So maybe they were justifying him because of his freedom in Christ or something. But Paul says, rather you should not be arrogant. What you should do, look at the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Don't treat that person as a Christian. There are two reasons that Paul gives why you should remove this person from the congregation. Number one, and most importantly, that his spirit may be saved. Verse four. When you are assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, this, to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Okay, hard language. To deliver a person over to Satan is to take him out of the realm of the church where Christ is present, and to put him in the realm of the world, where Satan rules, the prince of the power of the air. For the destruction of the flesh, I believe Paul is talking about the, sin, the sinful nature, so that once a person is outside of the congregation, he will see what his, the, the fruit that his sin has wrought, and he will become repentant of his sin. And he, then he will be brought back in, to the congregation. So the hope, the hope of church discipline is that a person might be, might, might repent of his sin, might seek forgiveness from the Lord, and then be restored to the community. The, the purpose of church discipline is always restoration of the brother or sister. Always restoration. So, the first reason Paul gives for church discipline to kick him out is so that his spirit may be saved. It is a sanctifying hope for church discipline. It's not, a, it's not simply a reprimand. It's a hope so that by the church's testimony, this person can see all these brothers and sisters think that something's wrong with my relationship and fidelity to Christ. Therefore, something must be wrong. The second reason Paul gives is because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened. It takes only a little yeast to permeate the whole lump of dough and make and make bread. To, only a little yeast is going to affect the entire lump of dough, Paul is saying. And it only takes a little tolerance of sin to seep into a community or a congregation to permeate it and set a spiritual tone for that congregation. And silence, a church's silence on open and unrepentant sin in the church is an implicit stamp of approval on that person's life and his actions. If what this person is doing is known in the congregation, if his fits of anger and outrage leading to beating his wife constantly or his, his adulterous relationship with another person or his affairs or whatever the sin may be is an open and unrepentant activity and the church knows about it, then it's the church's silence that aids his false impression about his salvation and also sets a spiritual tone for that community because then the person figures, well, this kind of thing is accepted here. Here's another good list. Paul says, gives in Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. If anyone's practicing sorcery and and it goes unchecked in the church. There's something massively wrong with that congregation. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. We need to be very careful today because there are many, many rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Let's be very careful about that because there's a lot of things that divide over and everyone is polarized about something. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Obvious things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not me saying this. This is the scripture saying this. So the question is, Will we be a kind of community where this kind of behavior listed there is tolerated or not tolerated? Where this kind of behavior is welcomed or perhaps not challenged at all or pointed out and that person is called to a different kind of better life? What kind of community, what kind of church would you like to be part of? I'd like to be part of a church that strives for holiness Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's the kind of person, those are the kind of people I want to be in fellowship with. Call me to holiness. Call me to a life pleasing to the Lord. Encourage me and challenge me and help me be a living sacrifice to God. Don't aid and abet my sinful nature which destroys me, my family, my community, and the world God created and condemns me. 
you know, I, I told you this before, but I remember, um, I think maybe I told you this before, but I remember I was watching a, a video of a pastor in the area give, giving a baptism to a little girl or baptizing a little girl. And maybe, maybe I'm just, uh, this just hit me wrong because he, was, he said, one thing I want to say, and I, I've iterated this and this is very important, no matter how much you sin, God will never love you less. And he was really adamant about this. No matter how much you sin, God will never love you less. Now, of course, if you, how many have sinned out there in the past 10, 15 years? I have. And if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, and you can go to him, and you can have forgiveness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is always available. Amen? So that is a glorious truth. But I think the church so much and is so obsessed with not obsessed, they, they become preoccupied with forgiveness that we've forgotten about holiness. Is that too harsh? To, is that too... Ang- forgiveness is a beautiful thing, but you are then called on the basis of forgiveness to strive for holiness and to, make your, to live a life pleasing to the Lord and to seek spiritual health and vitality and life that comes out of you, you're called to become a strong spiritual being. Um, So we need a new bumper sticker in the Christian life. Rather than no matter how much you sin, God will always forgive you. How about, therefore, by the mercies of God... Live your life as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable to Him. How about that? Romans 12.1 How about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How about that as a bumper sticker? Don't be surprised if when the world looks at the church, it does not glorify God if all we do is embrace how much we sin and that God likes forgiving sins. So I'm not... I don't feel the need to constantly qualify what I say. We are saved by grace. But grace does something with you. It doesn't just do something for you. There's a bumper sticker. Amen. So, I think it is the church's tolerance of sin which hurts her witness more than her intolerance ever hurt her witness. We are called to be a deliberately holy people, to be a city on a hill. Let us be that for God's glory. So, Paul gives here, this is a great example in 1 Corinthians 5 of somebody who is guilty of sin and Paul tells them to remove them from the congregation that his spirit may be saved and because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, 
this is a loving activity. All right, it is a, it is a loving thing to tell somebody if they're going to die, right? In Second Corinthians, I cannot find the passage, but in Second Corinthians. We have a great hope that this person in 1 Corinthians 5 was in fact restored to the community of the saints. And it was because of his church discipline. And so Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, let me see if I have the reference down here. Writing in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 5. I think... Now, there's some speculation about this, but I think that the person who was excommunicated from the church in 1 Corinthians 5 was then told to be brought back into the church in 2 Corinthians after his excommunication. Listen to this. Paul says, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one... The punishment by the majority has been enough. So now, you should now turn and forgive and comfort him, that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in anything. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, I have forgiven already. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how church discipline can work? You call out a person's sin, the person comes to a repentant state, and the church welcomes them back in, restored. And that is how church discipline can work. So, I believe 1 Corinthians 13 tells me that love hopes all things and love believes all things. So I believe it is the loving thing to hope and to believe that through church discipline, a brother or sister can be brought back from wandering and his soul could be saved from great danger by the testimony of the local church in church discipline. Um, So there's great hope in church discipline. Now, how should we do this then? If someone's guilty of sin, should we just point at them? And should the congregation say, sinner, and then we send them off? No, there's a process. There is a process to church discipline. And I believe that church discipline should follow Jesus' prescribed pattern of dealing with sin in Matthew 18. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15, he gives a pattern for dealing with sin horizontal sin, but I think there's a wider application for vertical sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there is a four-step process I see here. 
four-step process Jesus gives us. Number one, you go to the person personally if somebody is guilty of a sin that you know about. Don't just bring it to me as a pastor. You go to him or her. Then, if he rejects your admonishment, then you take two or three others with you. And the conversation should be something like, you know, brother, we care about your soul. And this is not the way you learned Christ. And so we're challenging you to strengthen your weak knees. We want to help you through this the best we can. But we are calling you to repent of your sin and to quit it now. If the person rejects even that loving admonishment from the brothers, then it should be taken to the church. That is, the members of the church should be told about this sin. And the church should go to that person collectively and call that person to repentance. And if he then refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or an unbeliever. That's the process. We followed this process two years ago in this church. And I did not relish this at all. But um, somebody was going to go through with a divorce that had no biblical warrant whatsoever. And this was this person's fourth marriage. And so there's a, there was a pattern. And so, not that I want to get uh, divulge too much information here, but this person set, came up to me and said, you know, I said, hey, how are you doing? And this person said, well, it's been tough. I'm getting a divorce. Now, what am I supposed to say to that, to that as a pastor of the church? Am I supposed to say, well, fabulous. That's, you know, well, I'm sorry. Let's, I'll help you fill out the papers. What, what, what is my role as somebody who believes Jesus when he says that from the beginning, divorce was not so? It is not the will of God. We should not be a community where that kind of thing flies without being discerned, checked by Scripture. And so we did have to go through a process. I went to this person two, three times, took a brother with me two other times, then I brought it to the church. Maybe some of you remember that. And we had to remove them from membership. Afterwards, we reached out to this person, lovingly welcomed them back, then asked them, So we were all over the place there. We were trying to get this person restored. It did not work out, but love hopes all things and love believes all things. So we don't know what the future will hold for this person. Um, When Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Did he revile them? Did he spit on them? Did he accuse them? No, he treated them very lovingly but he treated them as people who needed spiritual healing, that needed forgiveness, that were condemned in the eyes of God, that needed to come to him. That's how he treated unbelievers, Gentiles and and tax collectors. So if somebody is the object of church discipline, our conversation with that person should not be, hey, brother, how you doing? Our conversation with that person in the hallway should be, you must repent. You need to repent of your. This is not the way you've learned Christ. 
I'm calling you to repent. The whole church does too. We love you. I want to see you flourish in the Lord. But this kind of activity hurts your own soul. It hurts the others you're participating in it with. And it destroys your fellowship with the Lord. So I'm calling you to a more beautiful form of existence. So, um, three things. I want to end with three things um, that just tell you why we do church discipline. Number one, or what church discipline is. Number one, I would say that church discipline is an act of genuine love for a person. Genuine love. The emphasis being genuine there. Paul says in Romans, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So genuine love hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Genuine love hates abortion because it loves infants. It loves life that God created. Genuine love hates child sex trafficking because it, it destroys a person whom God created for his glory. So genuine love does hate evil and it holds fast to what is good. And it would be very, very hateful of a congregation to pretend that a person was spiritually alive when they were spiritually dead. Number two, discipline is an act of hopeful love. As I've said, love hopes all things and love believes all things. So if a brother or sister, if a person is caught in sin and you're struggling with the idea of church discipline, you think it's hard and harsh and it has a, a mean angle to it, the loving thing to do is to hope and believe that God uses this to restore people according to his word. Number three, church discipline allows the church to be a city on a hill where activities that oppose the kingdom of God are not tolerated. And people are called to be holy, to live a different kind of life, and where the church does shine as people who are unique and different and salt and light and holy for the glory of God. I think the church should be a reflection of the kingdom, should strive to be a reflection of the kingdom should not look like the world, but we should strive to look different, more beautiful than the world, where righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit characterizes our community. All right, so that is church discipline. We practice church discipline in this church. We don't, we've only had to do it one time. We're not headhunters in this church, but if there is an open and unrepentant sin, we must, if for the sake of love, we must warn that person that they are on the path of destruction. To do otherwise would be a very hateful thing. Let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only wise God be glory and majesty and power and dominion now, before all time, before all time and forevermore. Amen and amen.